It's actually been, ooh, <laughs> it's actually been quite a while since I've been here, I think, isn't it? And uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. <laughs> One of the places we uh, planted a church, I've been speaking quite regularly, and then I'd uh, been away for a couple of weeks, and I came back, and the th- what I was greeted with straight away was somebody saying, uh, it's been fantastic having you away. <laughs> I thought, thank you very much. Uh, I said, oh yeah, the people have come in and spoken. It's just been like oil to the soul or ointment to the soul. Uh, unlike your preaching. So I, th- I thought, this is going really well. They said, oh, don't, don't mean to be an insult, but unfortunately, having you preach is like having heart surgery. And having it, having it every week is a bit much. I think that's why God moves me around and puts me in places and then takes me out again. It's uh, been an interesting year. Uh, we haven't really got time to share much on it, but uh, I don't know if this makes any sense to you. This is not a scripture. I think it's, I think it's from Charles Dickens. I, I am a cultural desert, but I, you know, I heard it was from Charles Dickens. It's sort of like it's been the best of times, it's been the worst of times type of year. We, we have seen some amazing things happening, happened. Uh, we moved to Bath as a family, and God has opened doors in, uh, in an incredible way. Uh, also, uh, I don't think I've ever felt as much like quitting at certain stages as I have done this year. So it's weird, those two things uh, <laughs> going on at the, at the same time. And in the midst of that, God has been speaking, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention about this uh, later, I think. And... Uh, some of you may have not known this, that I was actually in hiding and in a shell. Uh, but I feel God say, actually, now it's time to let loose. <laughs> so uh, for some of you, that's probably quite frightening. But anyhow, I'll, I'll explain that uh, later. I'm going to pray, and we'll get into the words that uh, I believe God has for you. Father, I want to thank you that you are good. And you are good even when our experience of you is not good. You are still good. And I do pray, Lord God, that this morning we'd hear from you. And everybody who's here would, in the situations they find themselves in, would hear you speaking and uh, calling them to uh, a closer walk with you and a clarity of what you're doing with them. So come, Holy Spirit, and speak through your word. For I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, it wasn't just this, but my daughter, for instance, Rhiannon, who's, you know, we've got four children, three girls and a boy. Uh, in one year, she spent six months in hospital having a major operation and saw five people close to her die. And you sort of think, well, actually, so, you know, uh, one person dying or one operation would be, uh, would be something. But all of that uh, is is a lot for anybody to bear, isn't it? Uh, and uh, for us as a family as well, I don't think we've ever known it be, and I know there's a financial crisis, but the financial crisis wasn't what bothered us. We've been without money many times before. You know, God teaches us to be both be abased and abound. But it was, uh, it was seemingly the lack of care that was around when you were in trouble. That's what, that's what can get to you. And so there are all sorts of things like this. But I know for me, uh, I can even pinpoint the day. I wasn't too far away from here. I was in a travel lodge by the London City Airport. And 
don't worry, I wasn't about to jump off a bridge or anything. But at a, a very, very low point, God just spoke. Uh, and somehow, it's amazing, isn't it? The circumstances didn't change from before he spoke till after he spoke. And yet, it was like night and day. It felt like Job, when, you know, there seems nothing to, uh, no breakthrough at all, and then suddenly God speaks out of the storm. And although it's good news, the first thing that happens is you have to repent for being an idiot. Well, you might not do, I do. Think, well, when God makes it clear, you think, actually, you know what? You told me this all along. You said this was going to happen, and now I'm surprised that it has happened. I've even preached about this many times. Moses, God speaks to Moses and says, you're going to go to Pharaoh, you're going to speak to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. And basically, all hell's going to break loose, and it's going to take a while, but then I'm going to glorify myself through Pharaoh. So Moses goes to Pharaoh, he speaks to Pharaoh, Pharaoh sa <coughs> says, no chance, and makes it worse for Israel. In other words, all hell breaks loose. And Moses, oh God, how can you do this? Well, actually, I told you. Right? And yet, we, we easily forget. At the beginning of 2012, God said to me, this year, war breaks out. And he said, you will never have seen anything like it before. Everything you're trying for will be contested. He told me that. The trouble is, when it happened, I sort of forgot that. And I thought, well, God, what do you think you're playing at? This really shouldn't be like this. And yet, it, it was. So we often forget uh, that. And in the midst of it, uh, some of these things, uh, uh, God spoke to me again. I'd like to say God spoke to me the first time, but like I said, that's the, that's the thing about being thick like me on this. God had to speak them to me again. He'd already said these things, and he came again. And as I was praying about what to bring today, uh, the message, by the way, is going to be called Mind the Gap. It ought to be uh, uh, okay for you guys who live in London. Mind the Gap. Because I believe that many of us, and certainly it was true for us, we'd been through a period of time where we'd seen great blessing, and now we were in a time which felt like a desert time, but there was a promise of great future blessing. So it's like living between glory and glory, between all the things that God used to do and all the things he's promised he's going to do, but why is it so crappy right now? Sorry about the language, but you're from London, aren't you? You cope with that. And how do we live in this gap between what was glorious and what will be glorious. That is what I want to bring to you. The past glory, the future glory. Leaving for them, you know, Israel for instance, leaving Egypt, which was glorious. They saw God break through in amazing ways to entering the promised land. Actually, there was some pretty rough stuff happened in between. A desert experience. From freedom from Egypt to the promise of Canaan. Now, this is where I'm going to read from Matthew and you, most of you will be used to this uh, passage of scripture referring to the second coming, but I want to try and educate you today. Verse 29, it says in chapter 24, immediately after, after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky 
and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and glory. Most people who read this think it's talking about the second coming. And at some stage, obviously, it will, because <laughs> when Jesus finally comes riding a white horse, there will be power and glory. But if you go into the Old Testament, what you find is that this scripture is actually mentioned several times, and it's always in the context of huge empire shift. When God is pulling down one empire and raising up another. So in Isaiah 19, for instance, it says, See Egypt, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. Clearly, they weren't talk it wasn't talking to Egypt back then about the second coming or the end of all the ages. The same sort of scriptures is used for the end of the Babylonian Empire. See, that was the end of the Egyptian Empire. The end of the Babylonian Empire was announced to Babylon in the prophecies in Isaiah as the sun will be darkened, the moon will turn to blood, and then this, this scripture, this, you will see the Son of Man coming. Because what this scripture, the Jews understood it to mean, was that God was resetting the earth. He was coming in judgment to reset all the things that were going on on the earth, to bring down kingdoms, to raise up kingdoms. You will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. So that was what God was about. You could see this at the trial of Jesus. You may not have realized this. But the high priest says to Jesus, tell us plainly if you are the Son of God. And Jesus replies back to him, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. The Jewish high priest responded, and so did all the Jews, see, we don't need any more witnesses, he's guilty of blasphemy. Why was that blasphemy? You will see the Son of Man. He just asked him if he was, he was the Son of God. <laughs> it was blasphemy to the Jews because they knew this scripture. It meant that God was coming in judgment. And what was actually happening there Caiaphas and the rest of the Sanhedrin thought they were judging Jesus. And when they asked him that question, he said, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. In other words, the trial you think is taking place right now is not the trial that's actually taking place. You are being judged and found wanting. And you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And what Jesus prophesied took place about 30 years later with the destruction of Jerusalem and the tearing down of the temple and all of the Judaistic ritual. They thought they were judging Jesus, but actually Jesus was proclaiming judgment. You will see the Son of Man. They understood that to be a claim of deity. Well, if this is what that means, <laughs> then we are living in such a time where the Son of Man is coming on the clouds. Because the empires of the West are crumbling. And the empires of the East are rising. God 
is shifting the world. The Son of Man is coming and has come on the clouds. That's both good news, believe it or not, and slightly bad news. If you're looking for the resurrection of the West, <laughs> you're in trouble because it ain't coming. The Son of Man is moving and shaking and shifting. There is a global shift going on in our day and age. Everything is shifting. Now, why is this important? Uh, I thought that in some sense that's self-evident. But I was, uh, I was in Ireland recently. And although I've traveled the world a lot, I've never been to Ireland before. So that was interesting. I enjoyed Belfast. Uh, and, uh, but while I was there, a guy who was speaking was talking about Moses going across into the Promised Land. And he said it was a time of global shift or shift for Israel. Because basically everything was about to change. Their economics was about to change. Their economy was easy up till then. They went out every morning and God provided. They went out every evening, God provided. That's quite a simple economy, isn't it? <laughs> you know, but they're about to go into the promised land where they're going to have to fight and they're going to have to farm. It's not just going to fall from heaven. So their economy is going to change. Their way of worship is going to change. They were used to gathering around the tabernacle. And now they're going to have to go each to their inheritance. Everything is about to change. And we are living in a time of huge flux, just as they were. And then the most strange thing happens. God says to them, you're about to go into the land of promise. But I'm not going to go with you. What? How can you do such a thing? 40 years. And then he says to Moses, you're about to enter the land of promise, but I'm not going with you. And the guy who was speaking made this point, which I, I thought was excellent, which is why I'm sharing it with you. He said, it's incredible, isn't it, that at certain times when God shifts everything, he starts to reset DNA, what's really in your heart. He wants to test it. And so he does some very interesting things or strange things. Basically, they prayed for 40 years, and then God is asking them this question. You can have what you've prayed for for 40 years but you won't get me. Or you can have unanswered prayer and you get me. What do you want? The young lady before giving testimony about how she prayed and nothing seemed to happen. It's interesting, isn't it? We've all been through that. But sometimes it's years, not weeks. Sometimes it's a lifetime. And then suddenly God says, you know what you've been asking for? It's yours. But I'm not going with you. What do you do? At those moments, God is setting the DNA. And what he wants to know, is it who you want or what you want? You have a choice of who or what. What will you choose? Thankfully, Moses, of course, he's walked with God. <laughs> he said, and the people said, if you don't go with us, we're not going up. And so the good news of this story is when they chose who, they got what as well anyway. Because God said to them, okay, in a sense, now you've made the right choice. You go into the promised land and I'll go with you. But in this middle time, 
This is what God is doing. Do you want him or do you want what he brings? I don't know why I've just prompted to say this now. I don't think this is predominantly true for you guys. But in Bath, we, it's, a, it's a very prophetic place. You know, Toronto-y type blessing type of place. It seems that, you know, you prophesy left, right, and center. Just, it's that sort of thing. And uh, one of the words God gave me to say to them last week, speaking there, is, uh, you know, what we can have the presence of God, but still end up under judgment. The people in the wilderness, you see, they had the presence of God. They had the miracles. They had all those things. But somehow they had the presence, but missed the person. It's incredible what Satan does to deceive us. Counterfeits are those things that look exactly like the real, aren't they? There's no such thing as a counterfeit nine-pound note. Is there? Well, except in Ireland. No, 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 no I'm only kidding. <laughs> the false looks like the real. And so God, even in our day and age, I believe he's getting people to yearn for the presence. In other words, they want that feel, the touch of God, and all these sorts of things, and yet somehow still end up missing the person of God. Who is it, or what is it you want? This is what happens. God is setting DNA in this mid-time that's happening. The second thing it's happening, which we're not going to do today, I'm just going to tell you, though, at moments like this, God releases mission upon the earth. Because the next verse, of course, is, I will send, it says angels there, but the other translation is messengers, I will send my messengers on the four winds of the earth to gather the elect. At this time, for instance, when, the first time, when Jesus talked about the Son of Man coming on the clouds, what happened with the destruction of Jerusalem. The gospel went to all parts of the earth. The wind of God blew into all parts of the earth. When the old empires were falling and the British Empire started to rise, it rose because of a turning to God. I'm not saying the warfare was God. I'm talking about, actually, as God changed people's hearts in the 18th century under Wesley and Whitfield, what happened is, as our nation started to rise... In other words, the old empires fell away and the new empire came into being. What also happened? The gospel went to all corners of the earth. At such a time as this, God is preparing an army to go into all the earth. He's going to blow to the four winds of the earth. Now, I'd love to talk to you about that. And at some point, maybe I will. Uh, if you ever have me back after this. But anyway, we'll see. But I felt what God particularly wanted to talk to you today was about the context of this world shift and minding the gap. How do we get to this place where God is sending us to change the world uh, in a way that we've never seen before? In other words, it's a land of promise. And to do that, I want to say, first of all, I think there's a global context, but there's also a cultural context. We're involved in helping businesses, and uh, one of the things that we're what I often use is something called TED Talks. You'll find them on the internet. They're usually uh, uh, they're talks by experts in their field. And one businesswoman was doing one of these TED Talks. Uh, and it was about how to change companies. And she was quoting from The Art of War, which is a book by a Japanese general, where he says this. 
No strategy or battle plan survives the first encounter with the enemy. And this lady was commenting on the fact that in this day of business, we keep coming up with business strategies, but when they hit the reality of life, they just boom, they're just blown apart. And so we actually need to start cultivating strategic thinking rather than strategies. Because I can guarantee you, as soon as you hit the battle face, you're going to have to change your strategy. <laughs> but then she made this phrase, uh, or said this phrase, which stuck with us. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. I'll say it again. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. The reason that happens with strategy is when it hits the culture of a certain group of people, they hear through their culture. You don't think Jesus was strategically stupid, do you? But as he came, the, cult, the Jewish religious culture, even though he says the words of life, what did, the, what did the Jewish culture do to his words of life? It ate them for breakfast. And we need to be aware of that. I don't want to... Of all people, you're probably some of the least guilty of this, but I'm going to say it anywhere, anyway. One of the problems we have with the Word of God right now is that God, because He's the King, He speaks in a kingdom context. But often, He speaks into a church culture. And a church culture eats up kingdom words for breakfast. God is speaking at the moment, for instance, about synergy in the workplace, about how He wants to be Lord in all of life. So what do we do? We start church ministries for businessmen. Because somehow, we always start with the church. But you see, God doesn't start with the church. Years ago, long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, John and I used to meet... Uh, with another gentleman and talk about what God was doing. Uh, and what I, I remember this conversation really, really well about how we get things back to front. And yet we're still getting things back to front now, I believe. Those of you that are over 40 will remember this, Morecambe and Wise. You know, if you're under 40, you may, may have seen repeats. But once Morecambe and Wise, they were doing a show, they had Andre uh, Previn on there. He was a composer. So you're already chortling, and the younger people are thinking, what's wrong with these folks? Anyway, be nice to the old people for a minute, right? I'll just tell them the story, and then we'll get back to, back to you. But the joke then, and again, if you're young, you won't even understand this joke. But he says at that point, then he, Morecambe says, you know, all the right notes, but not necessarily in the right order. And I don't know why, but we all found that amusing at the time. What I want to say now is, we have all the right notes as the people of God. We just haven't got them in the right order. You see, there is kingdom, there is discipleship, and there is the people of God. But we nearly always start with the people of God, or what we perceive to be the church, try and make disciples, and hope that that will usher in or bring in the kingdom. But that's not the right order. That's not how Jesus does it. Jesus came demonstrating and declaring the kingdom, from which he started to make disciples, 
from which believing communities were birthed. I'll tell you now, if you listen to what I'm saying, if you don't hear it with kingdom ears, it will not produce life. We have to actually, well, those of us who are speaking into it, need to learn to speak to our culture and see if we can't change it. Help change the culture so it goes from being a church culture to a kingdom, kingdom culture. To give you an example, and I'm uh, not wishing to blow out of the water anything that's just been said vis-a-vis Christmas. I think it's absolutely legitimate to invite people to a Christmas service, but as a general rule, I would say this though. How is it that still, after all these years, <laughs> our predominant thinking when we come to reaching the lost is come to church, when the predominant thing that the king said was go into all the world? Salvation was meant to happen out there as we went to them. To mention another one, just for examples. Often I've heard people say, oh, I'm not sure I could survive without my sort of Sunday fix. In other words, actually, we're a bit like the people in the wilderness. We gather so that we can move on. Interesting enough, in the promised land, they moved on and took their inheritance and they came back to gather. You really, they came back to Gilgal or back to Bethel. In other words, they came back with their stories of war and conquest. So gathering was a coming together of all the stories of what God was doing in the real world out there. That is a kingdom context. Anyway, that's enough about the culture. It's one of those things that I know you're big on here. Uh, and you just need to, every time you hear something, stop and think, hold on a sec, church ears or kingdom ears? <laughs> you know, how are we going to hear this and translate it? Three things, two of which I'll be very quick about, and the third one I want to major on. Three things that happen in the gap. Pruning. When the Son of Man comes on the clouds, a, pr- a pruning happens. One of the things about John 15, I've got some bad news actually here, but you can read it for yourself in John 15. If you bear no fruit, you'll be cut off and thrown to the fire. All right, we definitely want to bear fruit then. Absolutely. And the good news is I believe you are a people that do bear fruit. The bad news is if you do bear fruit, you will also be cut. That's what it says. You'll be cut back. The good news is you won't be thrown on the fire, but you will be cut back. In other words, God says you've got a choice. You can be cut or you can be cut. So basically, you might as well settle in your mind that you're going to be cut. And the idea is get cut for the right reasons. So that you might bear more fruit. A pruning is going on. The second thing that's uh, going on, there is a shaking going on. In uh, Hebrews 12, I was just reading it this morning, it talks about God shaking everything that can be shaken. I'm sure you could feel the shaking right now in the earth. Everything, economies, everything is being shaken. If you can't feel the shaking, then you're dead. And you need someone to bring you back to life because <laughs> it, is, uh, it is clearly there. But what what does he say in that shaking period? What is God doing in the shaking? It says, 
He is shaking everything off that's created so that we might find the creator. This means this is going to be a tough, tough time for churches and their structures. Because God is going to shake what you've made so that you'll find the maker. It's interesting, when Jesus defines his people, he tends to use statements like, you'll know they are my disciples by the way they love one another. Not the way they meet, the songs they sing, the style of worship, where they meet. Jesus defines his people by the DNA they carry. They do what he says. They love one another. They care for the least, the lost, the lonely. He defines it by DNA or lifestyle or life force. Which means in this period of shaky, everything that isn't that life is up for grabs. To be shaken down so we can find the life of God. But my major thing that I felt God lead me to for you guys is in this period, I can't remember whether I've brought some of this word before, but there's a desert refining. And if I have brought it before, it doesn't really matter. Obviously, you need to hear it again. If I haven't brought it before, well, great. Because we're talking about in this gap period. There's a very interesting scripture in Isaiah. In many of these scriptures, we assume we know But in Isaiah 40, it starts off, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And it says this, A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. I don't know about you, but I'd read that many, many times. And because I knew it referred somehow to John the Baptist... I always read that as a voice of one calling in the desert. Because you know John the Baptist spoke in the desert? Prepare the way for the Lord. But it doesn't say that, <laughs> as you're now picking up. The quote is God says, a voice of one calling, about preparation, but where does the preparation take place? In the desert. The desert time. You see, between the glory of crossing the Red Sea to the glory of crossing the Jordan, where were they? In the desert, God was preparing them. Between, and this is very interesting, with Jesus, between his baptism, where God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, to the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, where was Jesus between those two amazing periods of time? In the desert. Why was he in the desert? It wasn't because of sin. It wasn't because he'd done something wrong. It was because between this, the past glory, if you like, God affirming what you've been and, what, and God promising what you'll be, there's a desert preparation period. The gap. The desert changing us. In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. It's interesting in the scripture. It sees between the glory and the glory, there is always this desert period. You can see this again and again. 
God says to David, you will rule my people Israel. What happens next? Desert. God says to Joseph, you will rule over all of your brothers. What happens next? Desert. <laughs> well, actually, him, desert, prison, so on, so on. <laughs> you know. God speaks to Paul, calls him to be this apostle. Next thing that happens, you can read in the scriptures, 13 years in the Arabian desert. So God takes you through this desert process between the glory of being affirmed as a son and the promises made over to you till the actual coming into those things, this desert period. Why does he do this? Because he's preparing a way. And we're going to look at just several of those ways. I remember Jenny and I going through a really tough time, not with each other, you'd be glad to know, <laughs> but just in in what was going on, and we went to, went to Wales, and somebody was speaking on this, and they used this illustration. And you know what it's like when someone just reads your mail, do you know what I mean? Just absolutely explains where you're at. It was both brilliant, and I wanted to punch the guy. <laughs> you know, how dare you? When we're feeling low like this, and he said, because he told us this, this story, he said, this whole desert experience, because it's hot, isn't it? He says, it's like refining of gold. See, when you refine gold, they put lots of heat underneath it. And when the heat is underneath it, what happens is all the impurities come to the surface. And he said, the interesting thing is, is when all the impurities come to the surface, and I'm just going to be very straight with you. I didn't say them much, but I found out I knew more swear words this year, mentally, than I knew existed. Because when the heat is on, all of a sudden... All sorts of crap starts to come to the surface. But guess what? When it comes to the surface, our first thought is to blame the heat. Where the heck are you, God, when I need you? I thought you said, you promised, this shouldn't be like this. How dare they? You can use anyone you like. But when the heat is on, we actually start to look around us and say, this stuff, they shouldn't have treated me like that. The reason I'm bitter is, well, you'd be bitter too if you knew what they did to me. You know what the interesting thing is? Do you know where the crap comes from? When the heat is put there, it's not coming from outside. It was there. In you in the first place. All the heat is doing is showing what was truly there. Sometimes in the midst of these circles, I am horrified at what goes through me. I'm even more horrified, as I said, that it's actually there. But to acknowledge that means it can be dealt with. Because here in the heat of the desert is the question God's asking again. Do you want to say to him, turn off the heat? Which a different way is change my circumstances. You know, we're without any money. Just give us the money, Lord, and we'll be fine. You can do that, of course. Stop this suffering. Stop this, stop this other thing that's going on. Stop those people who say the wrong things about me. You can either say, stop the heat, or you can say, Lord, remove the scum. Because that's how you get refined. And God is merciful, because let's be real here. The real instinct, actually, is we spend quite a bit of time, as Job did, saying, Lord, stop the heat. That's our real reaction, isn't it? What I'm saying to you, though, is you can save a lot of time by getting quickly to, Lord, remove the scum. This same guy in Wales, this is where I wanted to, really wanted to punch him. 
He said, do you know why what you're going through hurts so much? Uh, you know, I said, yeah, please tell me. <laughs> he said, because you are not dead yet. You hurt because you are not dead. If you were dead, you could not hurt. Hence, Jesus says, take up your cross daily, follow me, so you'll die each day. Just a little one on that, by the way. I was at a meeting recently where the guy speaking was talking about how God challenged him. He was in France somewhere. Uh, God challenged him about dying for his sake. He said, will you be willing to die for me? So he said to God, yes. So God said, no, I'm asking you a second time. So he felt God asking five times, would you be willing to die for me? By the fifth time, he was getting really scared. Because up until then, it just seemed like, well, you know, theoretical. By the fifth time, he thought, I'm going to die. God keeps asking this, I'm going to die. And so this is what he was struggling with. And eventually he said, no, Lord, I, I, will be, I am prepared to die for you. But you know what God said to me while he was speaking? Especially because of the, some of the terrible stuff I felt we'd been going through. I thought, if you said to me now, God, that what you have called me to do in terms of changing the earth could be achieved by me dying, I think that's a good deal. I'm not scared. I'll take it. Seriously. I don't know if any of you have ever felt like that. If we could actually turn the tide of, if you like, the church-going apostate, uh, uh, of, you know, and then turn the tide and see you know, millions and millions of people coming, all the nations of the earth changed, all these sorts of things. Suffering stopped. I mean, it actually seems a small price to pay. It's like, so I said that to God, take me now. You know, I'm sorry, Jenny, and the kids, but I'll do it. Far from being bothered by that choice, I, I, this is a great one. You know what God said to me? He said, son, I'm not looking for grand gestures from you. The death that achieved all the stuff that you wanted to see happen has already been done. <laughs> and Jesus did it, of course, you know that. What I'm looking for you is for you to die daily. So stop the grand gestures and start dying today. That's what the desert does. It starts to lead us to that place so that he can live through us. So if you're in a desert period, it's part of God's process. It doesn't mean you're in sin, but it will mean that your sin will be revealed. <laughs> because God wants to get rid of it. And then I thought about Jesus in the desert. I thought, what actually happened to him in terms of his temptations as he came out of the desert? The first thing the devil says to him is, if you are the son of God. He says that the first two temptations, doesn't he? Basically, the devil struggles, actually, to get you not to believe in God. Let's be honest, atheism is another word for idiocy. Well, it is, isn't it? I remember sitting with some folks the other day, uh, one of whom claimed to be an atheist. They say, you know, uh, and they said it was scientific. I said, it's not scientific, it's complete crap. And I'll tell you why it's complete crap, right? It's because, let's look around us now. You say scientifically, we can experiment. And we can only prove things by exper experimentation. Well, we can do the same here. Okay, experimentation. Evolved or made? Chair. Made. Evolved or made? Look around you. 
Tell me anything that you see that actually has form and design and purpose that evolved here. You have to be a complete numpty, don't you? Or you just have to decide you just don't want God. That's what happens. We have experiments around us every second of the day where we see that things with design and purpose are made or created. So, if he can't get you to not believe in God, and it's not a big problem these days anyway. I saw a documentary recently. You know, they said that they didn't find anybody under 30 that really didn't believe in God anymore. They just feel that Christianity has been tried and they've binned it. It's interesting. There was a university survey. I don't really think people are, uh, are bothering with it. You know, what, you know what the devil actually does then? The next thing is, if you are. If he can't get you to disbelieve God, he'll get you to disbelieve you. That's where most people are crippled. He'll get you to doubt your own identity. See, God in creation, he, God says, I am who I am, identity. Right? And then he says, the increase of his government will never end. That's his purpose. We're made in God's image. Every single one of you actually functions best when you know who you are and you know why you're here. So the devil will attack your identity if you are the son of God. Because this is what he was doing with Jesus. It's sort of like, in the desert periods, it's, listen, if you're an evangelist, why aren't you seeing people saved? And the temptation is, prove it somehow. And what's interesting in the scriptures... Uh, is that whenever God is told, prove it, you watch Jesus, he never responds. Whether it be Herod, or, or whether it be the Pharisees, when they say, prove it, it's like, that's it, nothing for you. Because clearly, of course, he wants a relationship. And if he proves it, he can't have a relationship. It has to be love, it has to be trust. So he, so he just won't do it. But here's Jesus' answer. It says, Live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God wants your identity and your purpose to come from what, who he said you are and what he said you should do. Living by his word. Now, I've been around churches long enough to know now that some of you will be thinking, that's right, we should be biblical. That's not what I'm saying. You know, the Pharisees were biblical, but they were going to hell. Jesus actually said to them, you search the scriptures, because then you think you have eternal life, but you fail to come to me. And I'm going I'm to possibly blow your brains right now and get thrown out. But anyway, we'll, we'll see. See how I can do it. It'd be a big achievement in this, this group, because I think you must be used to pretty radical things. We live by every th word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what Jesus said he did. What well, can I say to you? That sometimes we need to understand then, uh, well, not sometimes, most of the time, we have to understand that actually most of us don't live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Let's talk about evangelism. Because I want to talk to you about the real nature of the gospel. This is the bit that will blow your brain. If you're living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, you cannot have a gospel presentation. Because if you're saying to someone, you need to be cleansed of your sins, but it's not the word of God at that moment, then it's not the gospel. 
It's not alive. It's a presentation. It's something you made up. What do I mean by that? Jesus said, now I'm sure he must know what the gospel is. Jesus said, I only say or see what... That's my phone, excuse it. He says, <laughs> he says, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what the Father tells me to say, and I only say it in the way he tells me to say it. Here's the real kicker on this one. The gospel is not that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Nobody threw anything at me. We're doing well so far. The gospel is Jesus. When the angels came and announced the good news, what were they announcing? The king has come, and all of his goodness has arrived. Jesus is the good news. His dying on the cross for you is what he did so that the good news could be applied to you. So, of course, it's part of the gospel, isn't it? It's the root of the gospel. It's the seed of the gospel. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But the gospel, if you like, to the people who run out of wine was what? More wine. My wife even argued with me about this one. She said, yeah, well, that's fine saying that. That's just social gospel. You know, I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Look to the last few verses. It says, the disciples, it says, Jesus thus revealed his glory. The disciples first put their faith in him there. Turning water into wine led people to faith. Why? Because when you do what Jesus tells you to do, when you say what Jesus tells you to say, people see his glory. They see who he really is. Because what he brings is good news. Then they can come to the king. The blind man comes to Jesus. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man says, I want to see. Jesus doesn't say, no you don't, you want to pray the sinner's prayer. He heals his sight. You watch. Jesus and the apostles applied what God said when he said it. They live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If you say to someone, when God actually isn't saying it, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Actually, I know this sounds absolutely radical. You're disobedient. And it's not the good news. It becomes the good news at the moment God wants to reveal that. What this does for me, you want to see in practice. You're going to have to think about this one, I know. Don't worry. In practice, that means every single person I meet, I've stopped thinking of them as saved or unsaved. I'm thinking of the... Here is someone who God wants to be good news to. I want the shepherd, therefore, to give me what he wants to say to them. Because guess what? His sheep hear his voice. Jesus said himself, I have many sheep I have not yet called. So this is also non-Christians, right? How do the sheep who aren't yet in get in? By hearing the shepherd's voice. Not by your mathematical presentation bridge to life. They've got to hear the shepherd's voice. I've seen people come to faith with the most ridiculous things being said to them. But if it's the shepherd's voice, the sheep will come. This is good news, not only for the unsaved. I'm taking a bit longer than I thought, John. Sorry. It's, uh, I think this is a really important point I want to make here, though. 
I just became fed up with, you know, with my parents. I had fantastic parents. My dad died when I was 17, but fantastic parents. But you know what my Christianity told me then? My religious Christianity? Because they weren't Christians. Was I had to go to people like my parents and tell them they weren't good, they were filthy sinners. Come on, admit it. You have hated that all your life. The fact that you are embarrassed to go to people you think actually are quite decent and try and persuade them they're not decent, they're crap. And then I'm embarrassed because I'm thinking, how the heck is that good news? It's not good news, is it? And it's not what Jesus did. Here's the kicker that God started to uh, reveal to me on this one. When we say what the shepherd says, and let me give you a practical example. I was speaking to a car salesman in South Africa. And he started telling me about how he felt he needed to do honest deals about his car things as a matter of integrity. And I said, I said to him, it is fantastic what God has put in your heart and the way he shaped you to do exactly what you wanted to do. I, I, I just think he must be so proud of you. And he, he said, well, I'm not a Christian. Uh, I said, well, that's not what I said. I said, God is proud of you. Because you're doing what he would want to do. You, by giving honest deals on your cars, this is good news, isn't it? So he said, you really think God is proud of me? I said, yeah, I really think that. He said, well, how do I speak to him then? Honestly, that was his next question. And before I knew where we were, he got saved, as you would call saved. He then brought his wife along. Listen to this guy. He actually makes Jesus sound good. That's because Jesus is good. And he wants to meet people at their point of need. And of course it doesn't stop there. And of course I know what the scripture says. 1 Corinthians, for instance, it's the gospel to the Corinthians, you see, was Jesus died for your sins, according to the scriptures, rose again on the third day. Why? What did they need to hear? They were doubting the resurrection. So the good news of Jesus for them was, no, it really happened. This is not making little of the cross. This is making much of the cross because what it's saying is Jesus dying on the cross for my sins and, and being raised again from the dead brings into play every single bit of God's rule and good news that can possibly be had in the world because every good and perfect gift comes from our Father in heaven, doesn't it? And a bit of theology here for those of you. I, still, I do believe in original sin. We sin because we're sinners. <laughs> you know, we don't become sinners because we sin. I call it original infection. That's the preacher's thing, but some other three are going to be eyes. But what about this? In terms of God's creation, everybody you meet, everybody is origi originally infected. They have sin all over them. They will not choose God. No, not one. So I'm not making light of sin. But when you meet someone with cancer, you don't say, Hi, you're cancerous. Do you? At some point, if they want to be healed of cancer, it is good news, funny enough, to say, Actually, you know what? You've got cancer, and this is what you do to deal with it. But it's not really a good introduction point. How about this, folks, that God wants you to speak to people and be good news when we start calling out to the original image in people that you've made after the original identity that God had purpose for them and the original intent, what they were made for. Wouldn't that be a better thing to look for? And so I don't take too long on this. I just want to say this. <laughs> Jesus himself is the good news. And he proclaimed the good news. 
Now, we say we want to be like Jesus. It's simple then. The gospel of the kingdom is this. Be Jesus and speak what he would say. Isn't it? Now, I know I'm appearing as a testimony to myself here. But what I'm trying to say for this is, you know what? I go to people, non-Christians and Christians alike, and in my seeking to be Jesus and say what Jesus would say, I'm actually good news. Many Christians are not good news to their friends. They're miserable gits. And we sort of feel that that's legitimized. Be good news. Say good news. It, it, we, we somehow invested God with all the negativity. That's what the devil wants to do. Instead of God actually wants to save people, heal people, bless people, meet with them, tell them that he cares for them, say this is your purpose, right? He wants to do that. And it's God's loving kindness, as we proclaim it, that will lead them to repentance. You know, when God suddenly broke through and told me, listen, son, I love you. You've, you've been feeling I've not been there. I've been there all of the way. I cried and I cried and I cried. And it, it wasn't a soppy thing. It was that then I said, I'm so, so sorry, God. God's kindness leads us to repentance. Anyway, I better wrap up. Uh, but this is such an important thing. Be Jesus and say what Jesus will say. Live by every word that proceeds in the mouth of God. Stop having presentations and try and put them on people. And just in case some of you do think I'm being soft, I remember a Jehovah's Witness person coming to my door and I felt God say, as she opened the door, she started a presentation. I said, you are a child of the devil. You're perverting everything that is right and you need to shut up now and not speak again. Now, I genuinely believe, actually, that moment, that's what God was saying. So I'm not talking about some airy-fairy, you know, just tell everybody God loves them. He might not be saying that at that point. He might be warning them. But what I'm saying, most of the time, well, all the time, anyway, be Jesus and say what he says. And if he's talking to a Pharisee, it might not be nice. But most of the time, he wasn't. And guess what? The common people heard him gladly. Jesus' hard stuff was nearly always said to religious people. Wasn't it? Anyway, I'll, I'll quickly go through the, the other two. You get the temptations. Live by every word. Really must be every word. Uh, trust. It's interesting. Next one. Throw yourself from the temple. What's it to do again? Prove it. Simple thing I was saying there. You're in a desert period. You, you might start to be tempted to prove your authenticity from your own strength. It's interesting, the devil will use the scripture to twist it, to twist you into not doing God's will. He misses out a few key words here when he quotes. The Bible says, actually, this, the thing is quoted from is Psalm 91. It says, he will protect you in all your ways. You know what? Stop trying to prove that you have a ministry. <laughs> Just walk with Jesus and your ministry will happen. God has created you in Christ Jesus unto good works. So he made you good works he's prepared in advance for you to do. The best way to do what God's called you to do is just to be who he's called you to be. Stop trying to prove it. So many people, Christians and non-Christians alike, are somehow living their whole life trying to prove something. 
Listen, if you have to prove it, it's sort of not real anyway. And if it is real, everybody will eventually see it. Anybody who has to stand up all the time and says, do you realize I'm the leader, is not a leader. You know what I'm saying? That's what I'm trying to say. You either are or you aren't. So Jesus says that. And the final one here, because I'm going I'm to jump. <laughs> the devil says, you know, I will give you all the kings of this world if you bow down and worship me. Uh, Jesus says, worship the Lord your God only, and, and only him shall you serve. Here's an interesting thing. You definitely would have heard me say this before, but I want to say it again. God is not really interested in results. And this is good. This is rent a heresy morning, right? I've got to see what I'm saying. Think about this for a minute. God says, let there be light, and there was light. Do you think God's trying to find a way to get things done? You know, he, he speaks the universe into being. Do you think he's concerned that he won't be able to do what he wants to do? Of course not. The problem is the process. It's interesting when the feeding of the 5,000 in John's gospel, it says this. Jesus asked Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? That's like evangelism, because it's a massive evangelism, right? How are we going to do it? And it, said, it only says in John, it says, he said this only to test him because he already had in mind what he was going to do. God knows what he's going to do, and he can speak it and make it happen. But he's trying to catch up as, us up in the process so that we become like him. God really wants you to mirror him. Let me show you what I mean. Just quickly, a couple of illustrations on this one. Why did we fall in the garden in sin? It's interesting, isn't it? He said, you'll become like gods if you eat the tree. Actually, it's a dumb temptation when you think about it because God's intention was they would become like gods. That's why he created us in the first place. That we would end up in fellowship with Almighty God. That the Trinity, in a sense, would become four. You know, we were being caught up into fellowship. That was his purpose anyway. So what was the devil really tempting them with? that they would go away that God had not prescribed. They would take the shortcut. In your life right now, in the desert, the temptation is to take the shortcut, to do the thing that will get results. We're so results-oriented. God wants to know, will you live by every word that I speak to you? Or do you have to justify yourself by getting results? I'm amazed how many times we do this. It's not all about success. It's about succession or your successors. I hear that quoted all the time. And then the very next word will be, what we're doing, we feel it's God because we saw this many people saved. I've seen non-Christians get people saved. You know, God can use a donkey, for goodness sake, to get people to turn around. Read your Bible. You know, results does not determine that it's, that it's actually God. What God is looking for is the process. Same with Jesus when he said this. The devil offers him the kingdoms of the world. What's Jesus going to get? The kingdoms of the world. So the temptation is not the kingdoms of the world. The temptation is, do it your way instead of God's way. You do not have to prove the validity of lifeline. What you need to do, or yourself, you need to do is hear what he says, (laughs) believe what he says, and when it comes to a choice of who or what, choose who. Then be him 
and, do what he, and say what he would say. So it's the process. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That's the temptation to mess up the process. The problem since the beginning of the ages, right from creation where we fell, right through Jesus coming on the cross is this. We have consistently, as God's people, ended up worshipping the way we worship rather than the one we worship. That's the deceit. The Jews chose their Judaism instead of Jesus. The danger for you will be, actually, you'll worship Christianity and the church instead of Jesus. This has always been the, the problem for the people of God. It's just subtle, but it happens. We start worshipping the way we worship. So we worship worship instead of worshipping Jesus. I was at a, a big worship concert was held in Bath recently. I'm not blaming the people who did it. But, you know, the whole thing was, I hope you've had a good worship experience. Listen, the people who did the golden calf had a good worship experience. <laughs> well, they did. They thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a sound of a party, but God killed them all. You know, worship's supposed to be for him, isn't it? Or we worship prayer. Prayer changes things. No, it doesn't. God changes things. Prayer is a means of connecting with him. And you could, we could go on and on. How subtly we get moved from one thing to another. Instead of worshipping the Lord. Because the last phase of this, of course, is God wants to move us out of the desert into the next phase of Jesus. The sovereign Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. God wants to send you into your life as Jesus. <laughs> yeah, not even with a message. He wants to send you as Jesus. That is the message. <laughs> Bryn Jones. Again, you have to be older to know him, but some of you know Bryn Jones. So I want to finish with this story. I was in Wales, uh, foreign missions and all that. Anyway, uh, we were at this, uh, we were at this uh, Bible week, and Bryn Jones was talking about the cross. It was one of those funny evenings, to be honest. Filth Wells. Some of you might remember that if you're old enough. Uh, and the first hour, I'll be absolutely honest, it was boring. Which was terrible, because I sat there feeling guilty the whole way through. He's talking about the cross, and this is boring. But something happened on the hour. And it, I'm really grateful to this day, because five minutes before then, I said to everybody, should we go? And my wife said to me, no, no I don't think so. Uh, I think we should stay. I, th I do believe God's going to really uh, turn up tonight. And to, if I'm really honest with you, in my mind, I say, yeah, Christians always say that. <laughs> Excuse to keep you to the end of the meeting. But anyway, cynic that I am. He goes on, but he told this story, and this is what I want to finish with for you. He said, uh, and this one's not in the Bible, <laughs> by the way, but it's sort of a play on the, the thing that happened in the Bible. He said, the devil is in hell with all his demons, and it's Pentecost happens. And so we know it, in the whole thing about Pentecost, a party's breaking out up there, and there's all sorts of noise, and they seem like they're drunk. And he says, imagine this story in hell, or this picture in hell, where Satan is saying, oh, I've got the most dreadful headache. And of course, of course he has, because he's been trod underneath Jesus' feet, you see. <laughs> uh, what on earth is that racket going on there? Can we not stop it? And so he sends a demon up to find out what's going on. And the demon goes up and sees Pentecost break out. And 
he sees all these people starting to worship God in their own uh, language and he, he then sees loads of people come to faith and it, it, it's just incredible, this party that's going on. It's such a great party, as I said, that everybody thinks they're drunk. So they must be enjoying themselves. So he goes back down and, he, and Satan says, so what is it? What is this noise that's going on there? It's driving me crazy. And then this is the line that, that got to me and still does to this day. He said, the, the demon says to Satan, you know that one who trampled us under his feet? He goes, yes. He said, he's just gone and multiplied himself. He has just gone and multiplied himself. The gospel is that you, <laughs> Jesus has come in his kingdom to turn you into like Jesus, but as you, so that you will be Jesus and speak what he would say to people and transform them. He's only gone and multiplied himself. In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. If God is going to blow on us and send us to the four corners of the earth, he actually, he wants to send Jesus, not a religious movement, which is why this is so important you get this. He wants to send Jesus to your school, your college, your place of work, your different country. He does not want to send Christianity. He wants to send Jesus. That really is good news. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your children here. And uh, I'm simply going to ask, Lord God, that you would multiply yourself again. That we, we would taste and see that you are good and then share you. Help us in the desert, Lord, <laughs> to allow you to refine us. And in the promised land, and in the desert, to live by every word that you say to us. Both about who we are and what we're called to do. I commit us to your grace for that. So come Holy Spirit and seal your word in us, for I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.